Welcome to Pulse of the Caribbean, Caribbean News Roundup. Here's a look at some of our Caribbean headlines for today. Two Haitian journalists killed by gang outside Port-au-Prince. Calling Omicron mild a mistake warns World Health Organization. Oil companies apply to reclaim $20 million from Guyana Revenue Authority. Jamaica's Natural Resource Conservation Authority approves release of lands in St. Anne for mining. Puerto Rico bankruptcy judge rejects credit union fraud claims and Ellison Tommy Thompson named CEO of St. Kitts Tourist Authority. These and other stories on today's Pulse of the Caribbean, Caribbean News Roundup for Friday, January 7th. We start a report today in Haiti. HaitiNews.net reports that two journalists were assassinated after interviewing a gang leader on the outskirts of the Haitian capital, Port-au-Prince, on Thursday as members of a rival criminal group opened fire on them. The media workers were targeted by members of a rival crime group in a turbulent area outside Haiti's capital. Three journalists working for online outlets and a radio station arrive in Le Bleu 12 area on the day of the interview with one of the local crime lords. Shortly after the meeting had ended, they were attacked by a rival gang. Two journalists identified as Amadi John Wesley and Wilkins Lusant were shot dead while their colleague was lucky to escape. The bandits then burned the bodies of their victims, according to reports in the local media. Multiple gangs are fighting for control of the area in Le Bleu 12, where the killings took place. Several armed gangs are currently fighting for control of Le Bleu 12, a strategic area through which one of the key routes to the southern part of the Caribbean country lies. The chaotic situation with organized crime has deteriorated even further since the assassination assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moise six months ago. The gangs have expanded their activities beyond the poorer neighborhoods of Port-au-Prince, with police lacking the resources and manpower required to counter them. There were at least 950 kidnappings in the country in 2021 alone, according to human rights groups. St. Lucia Time reports that the Omicron variant of COVID-19 is killing people across the globe and should not be dismissed as mild, the World Health Organization insisted Thursday. World Health Organization Chief Tedros Gerborius said that the record number of people catching the new variant, which is rapidly outcompeting the previous Delta variant in many countries, meant hospitals are being overwhelmed. While Omicron does appear to be less severe compared to Delta, especially in those vaccinated, it does not mean it should be categorized as mild, Tedros told a press conference. Just like the previous variants, Omicron is hospitalizing people and it is killing people, he explained. In fact, the tsunami of cases is so huge and quick that it is overwhelming health systems around the world. Just under 9.5 million new COVID-19 cases were reported to the World Health Organization last week, a record up 71% on the week before. 
But even this was an underestimate, Tedro said, as it did not reflect the backlog of testing around the Christmas New Year holiday, positive self-tests not registered, and overburdened surveillance systems missing cases. Tedros used his first speech of 2022 to slam the way rich nations hodge available vaccine doses last year, saying it had created the perfect breeding ground for the emergence of the virus variants. He therefore urged the world to share out vaccine doses more fairly in 2022 to end the death and destruction of COVID-19. Tedros wanted every country to have 10% of their population vaccinated by the end of September 2021 and 40% by the end of December. 92 of the World Health Organization's 194 member states missed a target set for the end of 2021. Indeed, 36 of them had not even jabbed the first 10%, largely due being unable to access doses. Tedros wants 70% jabbed in every country by mid-2020. On the current pace of the vaccine rollout, 109 countries will miss that target. Vaccine inequity is a killer of people and jobs, and it undermines a global economic recovery, said Tedros. Booster after booster in a small number of countries will not end a pandemic while billions remain completely unprotected. The World Health Organization's COVID-19 technical lead, Maria Van Kerho, said it was very unlikely that Omicron would be the last variant of concern before the pandemic is over. In facing the more transmissible Omicron variant, she urged people to step up the measures they were already taken to protect themselves against the virus. Do everything that we have been advising better, more comprehensively, more purposefully, she said. We need people to hang in there and really fight. She added that she was stunned by how sloppily some people were wearing face masks. It needs to cover your nose and mouth. Wearing a mask below your chin is useless, she said. The World Health Organization's Emergencies Director, Michael Ryan, said that with all vaccine equity, we will be sitting here at the end of 2022 having somewhat the same conversation, which in itself would be a great tragedy. Barbados Today reports that at midnight tonight, upon the expiration of the current COVID-19 directive, a new COVID directive would be put in place and will last until January 31st. This new directive will be very much like the same of the previous recent directives, in that there will be a curfew from midnight each night until 5 a.m. the following morning. There will be one exception to that rule, however. On election night, there will be no curfew at all. The rationale behind this draws from our history of the last experience on election night, where voting was considerably delayed until well into the hours of the next morning. And in addition to that, with our COVID-19 numbers rising, it is difficult to predict what might happen on election night in relation to the slowdown of various processes. And therefore, we feel it best 
having considered all of the scenarios to lead the way clear for electoral and boundaries commissions to do their work properly and unrushed, taking as much time as is necessary without running afoul of the directives. So the directives continue from tonight, midnight, until January 31st, and the exception to the curfew is election night in Barbados. Crider News reports that there has been a plethora of commercial activities directly and indirectly related to the budding oil and gas industry in Guyana. And as with any other business that attracts the use of the value-added tax, the VAT system, this would also apply to operations in the industry. To this end, the Auditor General of Guyana in his most recent audits of the government's financial records found that applications for value-added tax refunds by oil companies in the oil and gas sector to the Guyana Revenue Authority for the year 2020 amounted to $3.757 billion. This, the Auditor General said, represents claims from 61 companies in the industry. At the 31st of December 2020, the VAT refunds totaling $673.517 million were paid. The value-added tax returns totaling $8.018 million were rejected. Value-added tax credits totaling $66.215 million were disallowed and $773.925 million in VAT refunds were being processed by the authority. This would mean that the addition to the $137 billion in tax waivers and concessions handed to the industry for the period 2019 to 2020. For the latter year alone, 61 companies made a request to reclaim an additional $4 billion. Reporting on that very report produced by Guyana's Auditor General Diodat Sharma released late last year, it was noted that tax exemptions for 2020 alone totaled $137 billion or 700 million U.S. dollars in foregone revenues, representing 62.75 percent of total collections by the authority. This means that 137 billion foregone by government through tax exemptions for that period amounts to 62.75 percent of what was actually collected by the Revenue Authority. Commissioner General Jeffrey Stacia in the report was keen to note that the award of tax exemptions is not under the control of the agency. He said the tax exemption regime is a matter of policy and therefore only administered by the authority. In fact, the Commissioner General reiterated that he is on record as stating his preference for the removal of the concession regime and having it replaced with a system of tax credits as practice in the developed nations, thereby allowing for improved compliance with the tax laws and the terms of investment development agreements. Jamaica Information Service reports that Jamaica's Natural Resource Conservation Authority has approved the release of approximately 1,324 hectares 
of land in St. Anne's for mining to Noranda, Jamaica Bauxite Partners, Chief Executive Officer and Government Town Planner, National Environment and Planning Agency Peter Knight made a disclosure during a virtual stakeholders briefing of the Natural Resource Conservation Authority's decision on Noranda's application for mining in Special Mining License 173 on Monday, January 3rd. Mr. Knight said the lands that have been approved are confined to a limited geographical area. He explained that the environmental permit application by Noranda was initially for 8,335 hectares spanning the parishes of St. Anne and Trelawney. An area totaling 891 hectares was clawed back, thereby reducing the size of the special mining license available for mining to 6,183 hectares. The decision by the Natural Resources Conservation Authority is to release an area of approximately 1,324 hectares of the 6,163 hectares located exclusively in the parish of St. Anne, Mr. Knight said. He noted that the area excludes the district of Madras and the school environs. The geographical area is the most disturbed in the special mining license and, in fact, overlaps the study area where the most detailed assessments were carried out by the consultants, thus allowing for this informed decision. The area primarily consists of secondary forests and fields. No disturbed broadleaf forest vegetation cover will be impacted in the geographical area release, Mr. Knight pointed out. He noted that Noranda has proposed mining in five-year cycles. The geographical area approved was included in the 2020 to 2024 phase one cycle and is described in detail in the environmental impact assessments report. The Natural Resource Conservation Authority has directed and agreed to incentivize the National Environmental and Planning Agency to engage a qualified environmental professional to act as a focal point to oversee compliance and monitoring. The bond buyer reports that Puerto Rico's bankruptcy judge rejected the nearly $1 billion of claims Puerto Rico's credit unions had against Puerto Rico's central government and instrumentalities. Judge Laura Taylor Swain handed down her decision in the final week of 2021 in an opinion granting the defendant's motion to dismiss in an adversary proceeding. The court ended the adversarial proceeding Tuesday. Puerto Rico's bankruptcy Judge Laura Taylor Swain said the credit unions did not provide enough evidence to support many of their claims. The credit unions had bought 976 million of notes and bonds from the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, Government Development Bank for Puerto Rico, Highways and Transportation Authority, Employees Retirement System, Puerto Rico's Electric Power Authority, Public Building Authority and Puerto Rico Sales Tax Financing Corp. These made up for 65% of their total investment portfolio. The Government Development Bank of Puerto Rico and Puerto Rico Sales Tax Financing Corp. 
bonds, and notes have already been adjusted. The Commonwealth, PBA, and ERS bonds are slated for adjustment under the central bank plan of adjustment that Swain is considering. The Oversight Board said that it will submit the HTA and PREPA plans of adjustment by the end of March. The credit unions argue that the Commonwealth government and its credit union regulator, COSEC, had pressured them to buy the bonds and it issued misleading directives. The credit unions filed seven counts against the defendants. Count one through five relied on claims the government had engaged in fraud. While the credit unions said the Government Development Bank of Puerto Rico and Puerto Rico's Treasury should have known about the government's inability to pay the bonds in full, even as they urged the credit unions to buy them. Swain said the credit union's claim of government's knowledge was too speculative. While the credit union sought exemptions from the proposed plan of adjustment cuts by claiming the government was dishonest to them 2008 to 2015, Swain said there is nothing in the Puerto Rico Oversight Management and Economic Stability Act that allows an exemption because of dishonesty. Swain said counts four and five, based on local laws, were time barred by statutes of limitation. The takings clause of the Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Bill of Rights and by Puerto Rico's Constitution bar the adjustment of the credit union's claims, they said. However, Swain said the credit union did not allege enough facts to show they were required or coerced to purchase the bonds, which was necessary for their argument to succeed. The credit unions have a right to appeal Swain's decision to the Federal Appeals Court for the 1st District. St. Kitts and Nevis Observer reports that the St. Kitts Tourism Authority announced the appointment of Ellison Tommy Thompson as CEO. In this role, Thompson will lead international marketing efforts for the destination with a focus on trade and airline relationships, earn, paid and own media, partnerships and stakeholder communication. Thompson will focus on leisure and cruise tourism for St. Kitts. He will also prioritize the romance and meeting travel, incentive travel, conference travel, and exhibition travel markets with the goal of increasing tourism economic benefits across the island. Thompson begins work on January 10, 2022. Mr. Thompson brings more than three decades of Caribbean tourism sales and marketing experience, including a deep knowledge of marketing Bahamas Outer Islands, said Nick Menon, chairman of the board of directors for the St. Kitts Tourism Authority. He has proven successful increasing leisure travel, expanding key industry relationships, and implementing creative global marketing campaigns. We are thrilled to have his expertise at the helm of the Tourism Authority. Most recently, Mr. Thompson served as the Deputy Director General of the Bahamas Ministry of Tourism. In this role, he developed global marketing strategies for the ministry with a focus on the Family Islands, Grand Bahama Island, and niche marketing promotions. He also led the sales teams in the United States, Canada, and Europe, as well as Asia and Latin America, and oversaw campaigns targeting consumers, tour operators, 
distributors and wholesalers, travel agents, and airlines. Mr. Thompson has also held a number of other positions for both the Bahamas Ministry of Tourism and the Bahamas Tourism Office in the UK. He has additional experience managing visitor relations, cruise development, product development, and sales representation. And finally, Trinidad and Tobago Newsday reports that the Trinidad and Tobago Cricket Board is prepared to resume domestic cricket as early as February once given the all-clear by the Ministry of Health and Ministry of Sports and Community Development at the Alloy Lequay Administration Center in Cuva. On Thursday, Tobago Cricket Board President Azim Basarat rolled out a detailed calendar of events for the 2022 season, all of which remained solely dependent on a lift in restrictions by the relevant authorities. However, Basarat made clear all players, officials, staff and club members must be vaccinated to participate in any Tobago Cricket Board sanctioned tourney. Since the pandemic hit in mid-March 2020, all domestic cricket was stopped to curb the spread of COVID-19. He affirmed the executives met on a regular basis virtually to make continuous assessments, formulate plans, maintain contact with major stakeholders, and press the Ministry of Health for possible resumption. The first tentative tournament, Basarat said, would be a T10 in February, followed by an under 19, February 16 to 23rd, and under 23, February 18 to 25th, interzone tournaments. We are also in discussions with Barbados Cricket Association and Guyana Cricket Board about hosting an under 13 tournament in Guyana in August. Basarat was also pleased to announce a possible return to the National League Trinidad and Tobago's top flight competition. The National League will also take pride of place as the top club competition with action in the Premiership 1 and 2 North and South Division, scheduled to commence on March 13. We are waiting to see what the Minister of Health approves, advises, and what needs to be implemented. We are going to adhere to whatever the Minister of Health says so our cricket can play. For every National League game, there will be a match referee at the venue to ensure that the proper protocols are implemented and that we adhere to the instructions from the sports and health ministries, he said. This has been your Pulse of the Caribbean Caribbean News Roundup for Friday, January 7th. I'm Keisha Wallace. Thank you for choosing Pulse of the Caribbean Caribbean News Roundup as your source for Caribbean-centered news right here Monday through Friday. Be sure to spread the word to family, friends, and associates. For more Caribbean news stories and information, visit us online at pulseofthecaribbean.com and be sure to like and follow us on Facebook, now Meta.